Also, my name was Diddy growing up, so like people just ridiculed the hell out of me. Oh yeah, I can think of a few. Yeah, Titty is the big, uh, is yeah, the big one, is. right? So it has <laughs> never once Itty bitty Titty Committee. <laughs> I mean, I ran for a class president when I was Itty in fourth grade, and I put Diddy, and my dad put made me these slogans: Diddy, Diddy, he's our man. If he can't do it, no one can, right? And I was like, oh, this is great. Oh, this is genius, right? This can't so backfire. I, I put, yeah, can't back. No way, <laughs> this backfire, right? Put them all over school, and then like I go into class. Two hours later, I come out all. All of them had been torn down, titty written all over them. I mean, it was just mortifying, right? Oh, and so yeah. I was just ashamed of myself. I, I, I think fourth grade's not like a formative year. Yeah, yeah it's like, yeah. It's not yeah, usually yeah, imprinted. Yeah, no. You're pretty much past things at that point, right? <laughs> they, at the, last night, they always had this thing where I refer to it as a cry night, right? Everybody would go, they'd have worship that went way too long. Like four hours. Oh, it doesn't stop until everybody. Or, yeah, cries. yeah, yeah. Until yeah, everybody's, everybody's had an emotional rededicate your life. Re- yeah, yeah, yeah. Re- yeah. Rededicate your life. It's my and third baptism. I've done it. This is, and that's exactly, and that's exactly it. Is that I, I am looking around. I'm seeing everybody's crying, and I'm going, I'm not crying. This has to be wrong. Like maybe my faith isn't real, right? Mm-hmm. So I started fake crying. So I just started. I just started crying, like like not tears, because I couldn't muster that. But I'm sitting there going, I have my hand over my eyes. Oh, this is oh, geez, God's so real to me. And then all of a sudden, all the counselors come over. They pray over me for 15 minutes, and I and I dedicate my life to Christ. Now I've done this six times before. Like I don't. Why am I continuing to rededicate my life? Like, do I need to constantly let God know, hey, I'm still in this thing? Mm-hmm. No, it's the most ridiculous thing. So. I go back to uh, to the bunks or whatever that night, and I'm lying in bed, and I remember, and maybe this is the closest I've ever gotten to God, quote, unquote, talking. I didn't hear any audible voice. I just sort of had this, what what I refer to as sort of like an internal dialogue, right? Mm-hmm. And I just started this internal dialogue, and the first thing it says is, well, that was silly. What was that about? That felt really fake, didn't it? I was like, yeah, that did feel fake. <laughs> like... I know that I faked that, and they're like, and he's like, well, what, what's the deal then? Why, why are you doing that? Like, I, like I don't need you to do that. And I'm like, shit, okay, well, okay. I, and, th- and so I just started laughing out. <laughs> like I'm in this middle of this bunk room, and I just started laughing to myself. I sound probably sound crazy, and I just that was my moment of realization that like, I don't need to be anything but myself, right? Hmm. I don't. I can be this weird robot my, my my wife refers to me as a robot husband right <laughs> i can be that weird robot guy and that doesn't make me less connected to god doesn't make me less uh, it doesn't mean i have a better or worse understanding of the scriptures i mean that's all bullshit so so yeah so th- basically uh november start of november Maybe maybe a little into October of last year, 2018, I uh, started started having um, pains in in my belly, and it it started with just sort of like gas, and sort of like after I eat, I'd I'd feel sort of what I thought was just you know I don't know just gas or gastrointestinal issue, and I was just like oh this is weird, it's kind of come up out of nowhere, um, but uh, that's how it started, right? And then probably early November, I started going to um, my physician, my uh, my primary, uh, and I just said, "Hey, something's up. Like this is weird. Something's going on." And he's like, "He's like, don't worry. It's just uh, IBS." And he's like, "It's just IBS. Don't worry about it." And so he's like, "Take some Pepto Bismol and whatever." So for the next like two weeks, I just took Pepto Bismol when I was feeling it, and I was just like, "Okay, okay." But the pain started getting more and more intense. Uh, I started like at uh, at at one point, kind of the peak. One of the peaks of it was that I, I was at Lobster and Beer down the street. And I'm sorry. There's a place called Lobster and Lobster Beer. Lobster and Beer, yeah. It's it's actually a cool spot. Um, go for happy hour though, because it's not. I've always been a outside. little skeptical of it, but I'm like, I love how clear the name is. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It just it cuts right to the chase, and it that's all it is is lobsters and beer, or you know, lobster and beer. 
Uh, so I was there with some friends and uh, that were in town, and I got to the point where I literally like fell on the ground in pain, and I was just like lying there, and I, and I, or I went to the bathroom to be like, oh, I just need to go to the bathroom. And I was like on the bathroom floor and I'm like a, a bit of a germaphobe. I don't like, you know, mm-hmm. any of that. And I was like on the ground in pain. And I was like, okay, something's up. And so that was kind of a marker. So I went back to the primary care physician and he was just like, it's still, it's, it's IBS. Just go home. I was like, all right, dude. All right. So then I went back home and then in the next week, uh, my, I started getting really badly jaundice, uh, which is where your eyes turn yellow under your tongue turns yellow. Your, your nails turn yellow. And I was bedridden for like two or three days. Yeah. And I was like, this is something's up. This is an IBS. Like, I know this is an IBS. Know my body well enough, right? And somewhat, at that point, Ashley had gone to church, and I couldn't get off the couch. So I, didn't, I didn't go to church. And uh, someone at church who was like an a, uh, infectious th- disease doctor at UCLA, um, she brought him home just to, like, for, to stop by and see me. And he looks at me, and he kind of like looks at my eyes, sees how jaundice I was. And he goes, he's like, you need to go to the hospital. And I was just like, I really don't want to go to the hospital. I'm a really stubborn person. And mm-hmm. I just, in my mind, I'm just like, I'll just wait it out. Like in the, okay. in the past. Yeah, you've also like, been just, twice. Yeah, and, and, I've been, and I've been yeah. twice and they're like, it's just IBS. And I don't want to be the guy that like, goes to the emergency room and they're right. like, oh, you just had some gas, you know? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And in this, in oh. this whole span of time, you've not like Googled anything and totally like terrified yourself. I was thinking WebMD too. No, yeah. I, I, t- I tend to, um, no, I, I don't know why. Maybe I didn't. I, I just, I just, I, I, I just was completely oblivious. I'm, I'm a honestly, compulsive Googler. I think I have everything. Really? Yeah. yeah, yeah. A hypochondriac a bit. Yeah. Um, well, no, I Dan I, actually has IBS. And I <laughs> yeah. yeah, but I'll do nothing about yeah. it. I'm not going to change perfect, my lifestyle. Perfect. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly. And I, it, what, I think the thing was that my, my sister, uh, I'm sorry, sister, my sister has IBS. Oh, God. So it's uh, like it and checks so, out. And so I yeah. thought, there goes yeah, her okay. Profile yeah. Right now. <laughs> Luckily, she's married. Uh, what's she's her married. whole oh, name? Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> um, but so I thought, okay, that, I mean, it makes sense. Maybe I just came, came later in my life or something. Anyway, so I finally, my wife's like, you're going to go to the hospital. I'm driving to the hospital. So we go to the hospital. They immediately check me in, and all of a sudden, they're like, there's like four doctors on me. And they're like, oh, okay, we need to do blood tests and all this. So they run all these blood tests and do a scan. I think I did a CAT scan or something, a CT scan. And then an hour later, a, ner- or a doctor comes in, uh, a woman. She sits by my bedside, and she goes um, she, with my wife, and she goes, well, um, you probably are already thinking this at this point, um, but it's likely cancer. And I go, and we're like, we're like, what the fuck? No, we're not thinking that. I thought it was IBS like 30 minutes ago. What What are you talking about? And so at that point, we were just like, uh, no, it can't be that. Like that's that doesn't make any sense. Like it, it, it can't be that. So. She goes, okay, well, we need to transfer you to um, this hospital because of insurance. <laughs> this is, like, actually the worst thing about this. So my whole life, I had, like, I paid for the best insurance, like PPO, mm-hmm. best, because I was like, you never know. I was yeah. always insurance guy. Just make sure, just make sure. And I had just started this new job, and uh, so I I picked up the insurance on in October, and new insurance started in January. So I was like, oh, you know what? I'll just get, like, the cheapest HMO just uh. to save a little money. And then in January, I'll go back to the nice one. And then, of course, this happens in November. Oh, <laughs> and so I had this really shitty HMO. And so they, they make me transfer to this this place down, St. Vincent's Hospital downtown, um, where then that's like where the week long. This is uh, over Thanksgiving week. And this is where it all starts. And then they do a bunch of blood tests. I have eight different specialists come in and see me and tell me different things. Mm-hmm. Oh, we think it's your liver. We think it's your, uh, you know, your stomach we think it's all this stuff and i go i'm saying i'm just sitting here getting weaker and weaker more jaundice more jaundice um and they start uh, they do this emergency um it's called an ercp where they go down my throat um well yes and and then they put this stent in my common bile duct to release all the bile so it doesn't build up in my so that's where i was getting all the jaundice because bile is being backed up in my system um so uh, long story short there the doctor this doctor comes back in and he finally, this is Thanksgiving Day, because uh, her parents came, my wife's parents came, and just, just stopped by because it was Thanksgiving Day. And the doctor comes in and goes, he's like, uh, well, you, you have p- pancreatic cancer. You have something on your, the head of your pancreas. Uh, 
it likely we we believe or we're hoping that it's um it's I forgot what they called it, but it's like a it's a, like a non it's it's a cancer, but there's like a there's a kitty cat cancer and there's like a Bengal tiger cancer or a lion cancer, right? And we think it's the kitty cat version, um, but we won't know until we go in, right? Did they usually literally use the kitty cat in a bangle analogy? Yeah, I well, I, I think he actually used puppy dog and bulldog. Okay, this or is like, a terrible H and M O. This is bad <laughs> health insurance. On a scale of cancer, we have kitty cancer. cat. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we think it's a it's a kitty cat kind. Um, <laughs> he holds a up line. a hang in there poster yeah. with the kitten. <laughs> he just posts it up. He's like, yeah, this is what it's like. Don't worry yeah, about yeah. it. Just hang in there. They went to the ERCP after he told me I had cancer because that's where they like punctured it right. to, to pull a, a sample, and that's where he comes back and he's like, uh, "Yeah, unfortunately, it's the uh, it's the lion, like it's the bulldog." Mm. Um, and but luckily, I, but we think it's just level one or two, right? And then so that's when uh, and so I just wept for about fifteen minutes. It just kind of over overtook me, and there's only I can probably. I mean, I used to be able to count like on one hand how many times I've cried in my life, mm-hmm. uh, just because I don't get that overwhelmed very often. And but when it does, it just that it's just like a wave, and I can't control it. It just flows out of me, right? And so this is one of those times. Basically, they, they told me that within three days I needed to be in surgery. Uh, to do this thing called the Whipple procedure, which is uh, an, an extremely life-changing surgery. They take out uh, my pancreas, they take out my common bile duct, they take out uh, a numerous feats of my stomach, or they take out half my stomach and numerous feats of my small intestine, uh, and then they just like rewire everything back together and and just hope that it, it functions properly, right? Um, and if they take out the full pancreas, the idea is they could take just take out the head but if they'd have to take out the full pancreas, then I would just be like a diabetic the rest of my life. Um, but I mean, a small price to pay to have this gone, right? So uh, I go back to my, my job. I tell them, I confide in someone. I'm like, hey, just to let you know, like I might have to do this. I'm probably gonna have to do the surgery. It'll put me out of commission for two months. I don't really know what where this stands. And, yeah, and so he's like shocked by it. And he goes, you know what? And at the time, I was like what they called a, a permanent lancer, quote unquote, <laughs> which is like a permanent freelancer. So they don't have to give you really any benefits. Uh, and it's kind of just a way to take take advantage of, of that. Yeah. I've um, been that. Yeah. 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 And I, I've been that since I've been out here. I mean, mm-hmm. for 12 years. Um, but he goes, you know what? Give me a day or two. I, I know you got to get this done in three days. Give me a day or two. And at this point, I'm just like doing, I'm looking into everything I can to get out of the insurance. How, what, what can I do? All these like ways to get to a better hospital, better doctors. Um, because, and I, and I don't get me wrong, I liked this doctor. He seemed um, qualified. It's just, it, it just seemed like too quick. It's just like, wait a second. Like I need a second opinion and all this stuff. Uh, and luckily, uh, Brian Nelson um, knew someone um, uh, who he actually had stage uh, four pancreatic cancer. He's older He's uh, than me. His name's Randy. Shout out to Randy. He's the best. Um, but he called me, uh, like as soon as Brian told him, the guy called me. He was just getting out of chemotherapy and on the west side here. And he goes, come meet me right now. Like just drive to me and just come meet me. So he went to this diner and just sat with him and he just like downloaded me. It just let me like kind of verbalize everything that was going through my head and what 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 was happening. Um, and what, what was going through your head? I mean, at that point, it was just like, <laughs> the best way I can describe it is I, I was all business. Mm-hmm. I was like, I had, I had experienced the emotion that night and the next day it was just all like, okay, what's next? Like, what, what do I have to do with my insurance? What do I have to do to get second opinion? What do I have to get better doctors? Who do I talk to? How do I get the money for this? How do I, it was just all like business. It was so frantic and happening so quickly um, that I was told that I had to be in, in surgery in three days. It's like, what all, ha- what, what all had to transpire before then f- so that I would make sure that things were covered? Like what happens if I died under, under the knife? Like, um, did I, had I, 
written a will. You know, I had to write a, a will as quickly as possible. I had to deal with all my financials so that, you know, I actually didn't know any of the passwords and stuff. I handle a lot of the financials. It's just all these things were just business, 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 right? And so I'm just downloading him on this on this stuff. And, and he texts his doctor at UCLA and just says, uh, I won't come to chemo uh, next week unless you see this guy, right? And I'm just like, dude, <laughs> that's incredibly nice if you don't have to do that he's like he's like you're gonna see my doctor this week like it's gonna happen you're gonna see a second opinion and uh so this is happening at the same time as my boss at the time at my work was seeing uh was talking to the uppers of the company and just explaining like in, in confidentially like what's going on so i come back to work the next day and he goes listen um i think i found a way around this insurance thing uh we're gonna make you staff we're gonna bring on you full-time and, and at the time, I had been a production manager for probably five years, at, and I keep on was like wanting to be a line producer, want to be line, which is like the step up. And, uh, and he goes, uh, we're going to make you staff, and we're going to make you a line producer. Oh, a- and this is uh, – and, and I'm just sitting here going like, this is too good to be true because basically if, if I become a full-time employee, it, it, it counts as a qualifying – uh, benefit. It's like if you get married or something, right. it counts life, life, life altering yeah, uh, yeah. uh, events or whatever. And so I was like, this would be amazing. So we, and we were making all the calls to make sure like I, this would actually work and all these things. And long story short, um, within like two or three days, I was in seeing this, this UCLA doctor for a second opinion. And I was, I had a completely different insurance that was significantly better, hmm. um, that allowed me to be in the UCLA system. There's plenty of ways to look at that, but let's just say um, it was a lot of miracles for me. So I get into that. Um, basically, I meet with him, and he goes, "Yeah, we need to we need to do this Whipple. We think this is the best option for you if it's if it's contained to the head of the pancreas." So I said, "Okay, let's do it." Um, and within uh, three days later, he was like, um, "They went in to do the Whipple," and I uh, I go in, and they put me right in front of this this clock. And I said, well, how long does it take? And they said, well, you'd be under for like six, six hours or something like that, uh, six, seven hours. And if you wake up before that, you know that um, we didn't do it. Uh, and so they put me under. Um, and about an hour later, I wake up and I'm so heavily drugged. And Ashley is, my wife is next to me. And I wake up and I, the first thing I look at is the clock. And I realize that it's only, it's, it's, I think they brought me in at like, uh, I started surgery at like 8, 8 a.m., uh, and I woke up at like 9.30. And I was like, and apparently this was like the hardest thing for my wife. But I kept seeing the clock and then like looking at her and with the realization that it didn't go well. And she's like, yes, it didn't it didn't go well. And she's like on the verge of tears. It didn't go well. Um, and she'd explain to me what happened. And then I'd drift back out wow. because I was so heavily sedated. And then I'd come back up and see the clock again. And apparently this happened like, three or four times oh, and she man. kept on having to like tell me and you don't remember any of i this. don't remember any of it yeah yeah but i just she kept t- having to tell me that like it didn't go well things are worse right oh and so what so they went in through my stomach um with a probe and then when they did that they realized it had spread to my um they called the per- peritoneal but it's on my diaphragm a uh, bunch of nodules on there and they had uh, they realized i had um uh spots on my liver as well so just by definition because it has spread like that um i would stage four um how many stages are there four. Oh, yeah mm. so i was i was the furthest along now i mean the good thing the good news is that at that point um well it not come what it has never um spread to my lungs or uh my lymphatic system uh, which is my lymph nodes mm-hmm. because once it gets into the lymph nodes it's pretty much game over for the most part um and it didn't reach any of those so that's the good news right so it was i I guess you could say it's the best stage four that you could ask for you know (laughs) the best of the worst the best of the worst and so it's it's bad uh it's definitely worse than i we thought it was it's a lion cub yes (laughs) yeah it's a lion it's a lion cub yeah it's uh it's simba right at this point and and this, yeah. broad, this podcast is brought to you <laughs> by Lion King. By Lion King. And theaters July 19th. And Beyonce Enjoy, Knowles. Yeah. I don't know that Lion King wants their product associated <laughs> with pancreatic cancer. Hey, it might be. Uh, yeah. Yeah, it's, baby, it's baby yeah. scar at this yeah. point, right? Uh-huh. 
Um, anyway, so that's that's where it's that's where it stood, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and then real conversations had to happen about what the next steps were. Uh, and then basically, I ended up meeting with a um, uh, an oncologist, um, Dr. Weinberg, who's fantastic over at UCLA. Um, and uh, his nurse, nurse practitioner, Megan, she's wonderful. And they started just talking me through this and what this looks like and what the next steps were. And they told me why they couldn't do the surgery. Basically, yeah, they, they stopped doing they, – they didn't continue with the surgery because once it's spread like that, there's no, there's no point in, like, doing all the rewiring and maybe getting rid of the pancreatic tumor but mm-hmm. still having cancer in other areas of your, my body. Where is this in the timeline? Because Thanksgiving was the week where you're this really was, finding this, this all is, out. This um, is this is December twelfth. That you go in for the Whipple. That I go in for the Whipple, okay. and then they and then they don't do it because things gotten worse. Day after Christmas was my first chemo treatment, so um, I stayed in town because I couldn't travel, um, and went in for chemo on December 26th and have done it ever since. Um, and actually just last week was the, was the week that they stopped doing chemo. Um, because it's run its course uh, or do you take breaks? Because, well, they're taking a break. Okay. Um, it was only ever intended probably to do, you kind of do it in three month increments. Right. Um, but they were only ever going to plan on doing it for six months, uh, because chemo builds up in your system and the more you have in your system, the harder, uh, the worse you feel, the harder it hits you, um, the lower your counts, bl- your white blood cell count gets, and therefore your bone marrow takes a big hit and your bones become weaker and things like this. So, um, and at this point, uh, uh, about to about a, a week ago, um, it was, it was, it was hitting me really, really hard. I mean, the, the worst part about it is the physicality part of it. Um, and, and just learning that there's, and this is this is the tie-in is that there's no end to it, right? Yeah. So it's not like, it's not like potentially. Um, uh, and I don't. And I want to be careful because I don't know all this about cancer, right? But I'm just comparing to like let's say breast cancer, where you can you can cut it out, yeah, and um, and do some chemo and stuff and like that, and then you potentially have just quote can't. unquote you know cancer free or cured, yeah. right? They really never use the word cured because it's just not a word that they like to do, probably for liability reasons, right, you know, yeah, like yeah. they don't want to be like, hey, you're cured. And then like three months later, like, oh, shit, he's he's not cured. Well, there's a lawsuit. Um, so they don't never use the word cure, but some like after a few years, they might use cancer free or something like yeah. that. Like my both my mom and my aunt um, had uh, breast cancer. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, and I think I didn't mention um, basically I have this gene mutation. It's called BRCA1. Um, BRCA. This gene mutation, you, you might have heard about it with Angelina Jolie, mm-hmm. where she had this gene, and even though she didn't have cancer, she got a preemptive double mastectomy, and a lot of women are doing this now because um, <clears throat> it mostly affects breast cancer uh, uh, people, people that have breast cancer, and therefore women. Um, and but it's so it's much less studied in men and for for women basically it raises your chances of cancer by like 40 percent um and so the preemptive uh, double mastectomy makes sense for men it really only raises it um statistically one to two percent and so it's like and so if you have naturally everybody has maybe a two percent chance of getting cancer it it might raise it to three or four percent or something like that so it's not something that that even if you had it they go ah well you're a guy it probably won't be anything right well you know (laughs) actually the geneticist who did the blood work and found that out basically just said uh when she told me she's like you're just the the most unlucky man i've ever met (laughs) that's what she said yeah because the average um, age of men that get uh, pancreatic cancer are, is like 70. And I got it in 35, so half the time. So clearly, like, BRCA is a thing, right? Um, and it played a significant role in this. So, uh, so yeah. So I that's that's where I've that's kind of what I've been going through, and that's the long version. That's, that's the, the last seven months. That's the last right. seven months, yeah. Um, and I've I did probably... 20 to 30 um, chemo treatments um, and I was uh, on this thing they call Gensys which is uh, gemcetabine uh, mixed and, and then also cisplatin those are like um, they're mm. called platinum based drugs but 
um, those tend to have the best results for BRCA patients. Um, and the results thus far have been that the scans at least say that um, they don't really see anything on my um, diaphragm anymore. They don't see anything on my liver, uh, which is great news. Um, and the he the main pancre or pancreatic tumor on the head of the tumor um, has decreased to the extent that they don't, there's, they call it poor, on the CT scan, they call it poor visualization. So they, and I was like, what well, does that mean? Like this, the scan didn't go well or that like you can't see it. And what, and she, and my doctor said, well, it, it more means that like the analyst can't see it. Right. So it all seems like great news. Right. Right. Um, but, and so that's the hardest thing for me. Um, and that's, this is the hardest mental challenge. Uh, it's just that, uh, pancreatic cancer is, it doesn't go away. Right. So I'm probably going to have it the rest of my life. I'm so curious that you have like this robotic, to quote your wife, personality. You're very <laughs> logical. Yeah. yeah. And yet you have this calmness in your acceptance of pain and trauma and even death. Yeah. And do you read any Richard Rohr? No, I don't, I don't know what that is. Okay. He's a, like one of my favorite authors, but he talks about how the rational mind cannot uh, – tackle or comprehend the big three things which is love death and eternity it's like those are the three big questions people mm -hmm. have asked since the beginning of time yeah and rational minds especially as we become more advanced have a harder and harder time dealing with those mysterious ethereal, ethereal i would call them ethereal yeah. things yeah what is how do you maintain both I appreciate that you think that I do. <laughs> well, just, and your demeanor, and you're even in that prayer story about like finances, pain, yeah. relationship. Yeah, yeah. Like, I mean, that's I mean, pretty profound stuff. I, I think. I mean, I yeah. I mean, I appreciate it. I, I, I would say that death for sure. I am. I do not have fear of. Hmm. Uh, and and I and I would say that's that's partly because I think God took it from me that yeah. fear but I also think that that has to do with my dad was always super open about talking about that ever since I was a kid he would just be like yeah your uh, your uncle died and here's what that means and here's what that looked like it was never like a like a something that you couldn't talk about it was taboo like oh well we shouldn't show him you know mm -hmm. his grandfather's body after he's died it's gonna be so hard for him to comprehend like my dad was like walked me up to the to the hmm. casket and it's like this is your grandfather he's he's not no longer alive i know he looks similar like you remember him but he is dead now were your parents uh, christian yeah i mean i was raised in the christian church so yeah. was your dad telling you like he's in heaven now yeah i mean okay. i think he would tell me something that like you know he's in the, he's in a better place probably comforting things like that but it mm -hmm. wasn't um you had that narrative as on. I had my yeah, narrative. Yeah. I, like, for example, as, as soon as I called my dad and talked to him about, like, to, told him I had cancer, like, you know, the next day or whatever, mm -hmm. I called him. I was like, hey, this is happening. And he goes, so how long do you have? Mm -hmm. Right? I mean, that's his first question to me is, like, how long as do you have? As cool as that? As cool as that. And and I just started, I was like, well, they say I have six months, you know? And, and that's just part of the narrative that he always put in place. So... I would say that it's it's probably a little bit of both of that. I think God took the fear and then he made a, sort of a safe place to talk about it. Like it wasn't, like life was never this thing. You know what? There's a great C.S. Lewis quote um, uh, that says, if something to the degree of um, if you were, if, if you, if everything in you says that you were not meant or, Jeez, I'm gonna screw this. I up. think I know, you know what, what you're about? referencing. Yeah, if if we'll snip it in a voiceover. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's something to the effect of if everything in you. Well, now I've lost. Yeah, it too. I, I mean, I can look it up in a minute, but but it, uh, it basically it had to do with like if everything says that you weren't meant for this world, are uh, the only logical conclusion conclusion is that you were meant for another world, right? Mm -hmm. I I fucked that up terribly. You can we'll clip it, it in later or whatever. Yeah. But that's the idea: is that like. I've never felt attached to the, to this world, hmm. right? So I always had this feeling like something's more. There's something more that is that must be for me because I've never felt attached to anyone. Eternity. Um, that's another thing that I'm comfortable with. Hmm. I, I think that there's definitely there will be dark. I call them dark nights of the soul because of there's there's a pastor Matt Chandler I, yep. I love. He refers to it that way. Dark nights of the soul where I'll just. There'll be a moment, and you, it's usually when I'm alone in bed, 
um, I can't sleep or something like that. And they're just a million thoughts run through my head. Like, yeah. is this real? You know, I have all those questions. Sure. There's, there's doubt, there's uncertainty and things like that. But at the end of the day, God does not speak to me on a regular basis, but he does every now and again, he comes in and does one thing that carries me for the next eight ten, to 10 years. Right. I don't know if it's God sitting there going like, Ooh, well he's due for, a pick he's me due up. for a pick me up or yeah. Like, Oh, I'm going to withhold stuff for the next 10 years. I don't think that that's the, that's the thought process. Maybe it is, maybe it isn't. I don't know. Now love is a completely different thing. <laughs> I do not understand it. I cannot <laughs> comprehend it. There were a dozen moments throughout our interview with Ryan that stunned me. I think it's mostly the matter-of-fact delivery Ryan has about things that would normally cripple a person's faith. Ironically, the one thing that Ryan just admitted he's dumbfounded by is love. Not suffering or the vast mystery of the afterlife, but love. I've thought about this interview constantly over the past few months, and I keep coming back to this correlation between love and death, or eternity, or heaven, or... To pass on, to perish, to peg out. To push up daisies, to push up posies, to become extinct. God's way of saying, slow down. I realize that Ryan's cognitive disconnect between love and the afterlife is actually something I too have struggled with a great deal. And chances are, if you were raised in the American church, you probably struggled with it as well. Let me just reframe the whole conversation by asking this question. Do you go to hell if you're not a Christian? Chances are, you had an immediate yes or no reaction to that question. If your answer is a resounding yes, of course. Well, then let me take you back on a journey 1,000 years ago to 1054 AD. In Tom Clancy's Jack Ryan, there's a great line from a terrorist of all people who says, geography is destiny. The terrorist point is that being born into a village where American bombs kill your family is gonna shape your perspective in a slightly different way than being born in an American suburb growing up riding your bike to a friend's house in a cul-de-sac and playing baseball on the weekends. Or should I say esports, video games? I don't know right now, kids. Do they even play sports? We're getting so old. Anyway, geography is destiny. Case in point, the Great Schism of 1054. I'll spare you the details, but essentially what happened was the entire Christian church got in a big fight and split in two halves that still exist today, the West and the East. The West chose their Pope and Latin, and the East chose their team of patriarchs and Greek. Again, skipping over so many major details. But cut to 1514, and the Western Church divides again when Martin Luther sparks the Reformation by protesting, foreshadowing a tradition of Protestants, Protestants, against the Roman Catholic Church. Then jump all the way to modern American Christianity, which hasn't changed all that much since then. Now, you're probably asking yourself, what does all this have to do with Ryan's statement about being uncomfortable with the idea of love, but comfortable with the idea of eternity? Well, let me take you on a journey back 2,000 years ago. Yeah, kidding, but for real, follow me here. If you believe God sends people to hell, and you were raised in a Western Christian church, and the idea of love takes a backseat to the idea of moral judgment, then you, my friend, are very likely a product of your geographical destiny. You see, the Eastern Church has never embraced the idea of Jesus sending some to hell and saving some for heaven. We now call this idea universalism and treat it like it's some new age compromised theological stance, but it's actually way older than our punitive stance on God's moral judgment. Richard Rohr is a wonderful writer and Franciscan priest who speaks often about how in the absence of a theology of love, we inevitably become moralistic and our morals become proof that we are loving. But the catch 22 is that an emphasis on morals will inevitably make you more judgmental, which is the opposite of grace, mercy, and most of all, love. Rohr, who was born in Kansas and immersed in the Roman Catholicism of the West, also says that we have utterly failed to teach a doctrine of love in our Western faith tradition. He describes it as a sort of schizophrenic theology where Jesus can say, love your enemy and forgive 70 times seven, but then send people who have never heard of him to hell for all eternity. I couldn't agree more with Rohr's perspective and especially considering what happened in 2011 when Pastor Rob Bell published his book, Love Wins. For those who haven't heard of Rob Bell, he was the founding pastor of a massive church in Michigan called Mars Hill. 
Just picture a nerdy Midwestern version of Kurt Cobain speaking to the heart of angsty Gen Xers. Rob's church completely imploded when Love Wins caught massive mainstream attention. I remember this so vividly because I was a senior at Azusa Pacific University getting my degree in Christian ministries, and when Love Wins came out, it felt like the theological 9-11 had just occurred, and every, I mean every other megachurch pastor weighed in on it. Some, like Francis Chan, even wrote books combating it. The controversy raged on so powerfully that Rob eventually had to step down from Mars Hill as it completely divided the congregation and put an overwhelming amount of attention on Rob himself. Fun fact, there have been two epic pastoral meltdowns at megachurches called Mars Hill. The other was Mark Driscoll's chain of churches up in Seattle. So if you're planting a church in the near future, maybe shy away from the bad juju surrounding that name. Anyway, Rob got metaphorically crucified by conservative Christian culture after he wrote Love Wins because, and here's the funny part, he asked a thousand-year-old question. If God loves everyone, does he really send anyone to hell? Someone out there may be shouting, no, Rob Bell is a universalist liberal promoting heretical beliefs. And to that, I'd say relax, Josiah. If Rob Bell is a heretic, so is at least half of our Christian church because half of the Christian church has been taught and has studied and has experienced a God of love and mercy and not moral condemnation. Now, I'm not trying to say Ryan has a moralistic view of heaven or a Western Orthodox eschatology, as Josiah would say. We actually didn't talk that much about the afterlife because Dan and I were too impressed with Ryan's present journey to ask him about the next one. I just wanted to highlight what is a very common perspective that I too have shared in order to get us to think about the fact that our comfort with certain concepts can be an amazing signpost pointing us in the direction of what we are not comfortable or familiar with. Because that's where true wisdom lies, in discovering our natural blind spots and in the historical traditions of our faith and culture. And that's all I gotta say about that. Back to Ryan. I was looking at your Instagram and I'm like, you have no, like no mentions of this. Am I wrong? Is there like a post about it? On Instagram? Yeah. None. Yeah, none. Yeah, none. When I got rid of my Facebook, so I stopped seeing that stuff. Oh, okay. I still follow the GoFundMe yeah, just yeah, by yeah. Googling it, but... Um, and I don't really update the GoFundMe anymore. Rarely, but yeah. when I saw the last post yeah. is why I hit you up. And I was kind of surprised because in that in that post, you talked about your faith and, mm. and we can get into more in that, what that, what that process has been like. But I'm just curious, it has to be intentional. That it's not on Instagram? Yeah, nothing. Not a post of like, in chemo today. Yeah. Yada, yada, you didn't yada. change your bio or nothing, I man. Did. Well, think <laughs> well, about people we know yeah. who go through things <laughs> yeah. and you get inundated with Instagram posts. Oh, yeah. It. I would have dropped that GoFundMe right there under website. <laughs> oh, like, yeah. I would have. Well, this is, that's interesting. Okay. So um, I had a hernia operation and I took a photo on Instagram. <laughs> He was a real big bitch about it. He was just a real... Look at his two stitches. Just oh, a real God, puss man. about it. <laughs> yeah. no, uh, Bring me soup. It definitely... <laughs> it definitely isn't... So I'm a guy... And this is actually... this is uh, My wife would laugh at this, but... Um, we learned through dating that I'm, I'm a person that, like, when I'm sick, I just want to be left alone. Mm. I don't want you to bring me soup. I don't want you to take care of me. I don't want you to blah, blah, blah. Like, I don't like feeling like I need something else, See, need mm. someone else, right? And I did not I did not start a GoFundMe for myself because I felt very convicted not taking people's money. I didn't want to ask for help. That was still a thing, mm. for, uh, like a, a thing that I couldn't get past. And my cousin actually is the one who started it. And she's like, what are you talking about? People want to help you. Like, we're going to do this. And I said, I don't want any part of it. Please don't. don't. Hmm. I don't want to be a part of it. <laughs> and uh, so she created the GoFundMe and started this this thing. And she's like, how much do you need? And at, the point, at that point, I was just like, I don't want to ask for money, but um, I just need help covering this, this surgery because I thought I was getting the Whipple, right? And with insurance and, and deductibles and everything, the initial – ask was just like just for that 15 it was like 15,000 um and within two days I was at 45,000 dollars and and I kept seeing these things and I couldn't even keep up with it right it was just coming in too quickly like 500 different people were giving me money stuff and I just kept getting more emotional about this of like why are people why me like why are people giving to me um, and 
and, and so I, I started getting inundated with, as soon as I said that, I started getting inundated with texts and e Facebook e messages and calls and emails and everything. And I was just, it was too much. I mean, in two days I was having surgery. Like I just couldn't, I was trying to keep up and be like, thank you, blah, blah, blah. I can't, I can't give everybody like a detailed thing right. constantly. So I, <laughs> so UCLA, there's this thing called, they call it the tumor review board. So all the doctors every Tuesday meet about um, people that, that their patients that are having cancer and they all discuss what's the next, what's the best option? Do we all agree that this is the best move forward, right? Um, so I created my own <laughs> quote tumor review board, which was just five friends that I'm close to, like five of my guy friends that I would update them and they would update the world, mm. right? I didn't want to have anything to do with everything else. But the best thing that came out of this, right, is um, I actually have, uh, and I won't say his name, but I had a, I had a, uh, a friend, uh, a DP that I worked with um, on in the field for about eight months. And he texts me, this is like a day before my surgery, he texts me and he goes, we need to talk right now, we need to talk. And I'm like, dude, I just, I'm, be, I'm inundated right now, please, I can't talk about this right now. He's like, I'm going to call you, you have to talk to me. And I was like... God, okay. So I'm at work. I like step away <laughs> in this corner and he calls me and he tells me that he has stage four pancreatic cancer uh, and he's had it for a year and a half and he hasn't told anybody. He hasn't, the only person that knows is his wife. He stopped working. He hasn't told any of his friends. Uh, he had a Whipple procedure and just isolated himself, right? And he called me under this, it felt like a pretense of like, he just started telling me how bad this was going to be, you know, and, like he was giving me insight into this. And I'm sitting there thinking, as I'm talking to him, we're 10, 15 minutes in this conversation. I'm going, this is not what I need the day before surgery. Before, Like you're making me think that, that my life's over and like this is going to be really, really hard. And but as I talked to him, I started realizing like three things, right? One, that um, he was not at least to my knowledge, he was not a man of faith. And, um, and so he started talking about depression, anxiety, um, loneliness, and all of these things, fear, and all these things that I just wasn't experiencing. And I didn't know why. Like, I was like, man, I probably should be going through a lot of what you're going, like you've been through and going through mentally and all this stuff. And at the time, I was just chalking it up to the fact that everything was happening so quickly that my mind was just overwhelmed uh, with all this information that I, I didn't give myself time to process. Um, but now I think that that, for me at least, I think that was a recognition that um, that my my faith had, had like there, there wasn't a fear there because of my faith, right? Mm. So that was one thing. Two, um, that reaching out to everybody was the right call. He hasn't, he didn't tell anybody except his wife. And he was, dealing with a lot of despair and loneliness and depression. Um, and that was like a validation for me that I did the right thing to reach out with all these people, right? Because I was just yeah. being overwhelmed with love and acceptance and just, you know, care and all this stuff and things that was, it was a little too much at the time, but I can look back and go like, that was what I needed, right? Going before going into the surgery, it just made me feel like, you know what, no matter what happens, Ashley's going to be fine. Like people are there to take care of her and 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 take care of me if if I end up in this life changing thing. Uh, so reaching out to somebody like others was was the right call. Um, and what was the third thing? There's the uh, faith that oh, and the last thing was that God was calling me. Like he basically God was saying like yeah, dude, I'm I'm going to take care of you in this time. Um, and you reached out to people and that was the right thing to do. And I'm and you're taking care of people. But what I realized at the end of that call was that that call wasn't for me. That was that was for him. He didn't have anybody he could talk to about this. And I happened to be the one person that he knew that was experiencing the same thing. And um, and that's weighed on me a lot because uh, so he died uh, about a month ago, month and a half ago. And it was really heavy for me um, because I think in that moment, at the end of that call, it was like God just saying, yeah, th this is going to be hard for you. Like the, the, this experience is going to be hard. I'm going to take care of you. 
but I, I, I still expect you to, to pour in other people. Like this, this is not happening to you just, you know, for some outward thing. I expect you to step into a conversation and initiate conversations with other people. And this is one of those guys, right? This is like, and uh, I felt I've, and I still, I'm still obviously struggling with this, but um, I've, I've felt really convicted after I, cause I texted him finally, this is like four or five months after my, you know, my chemo was getting going and I was feeling a little bit better and I had a better mentality. Uh, and I texted him and his wife called me a couple like a week later and just said, you know, he had passed. And I still am struggling with the fact that I didn't, re- I hadn't reached out to follow up and just check on him and just this one guy that I was entrusted with his story um, that I didn't step into that more. Um, and so that, that's been hard on me. <sighs> Literally, the only thing I want to tell people is don't be mad at God. Because this is not, this isn't God punishing me. This isn't God's going like, you have been a bad person or you didn't pray enough or you didn't whatever, like you didn't, you don't have enough faith or, you know, uh, whatever it is, yeah. whatever thoughts to go through. I mean, I, I know my, my, my family would be angry, you know, God, I think some of my friends would be angry at God. And I think all I want to let people know is just like, I'm good. Like, mm. like if I go tomorrow, um, I've lived a good life. I've had a good life. God has been really good to me. Now, has it been an easy life? No, right? <laughs> we, uh, my wife and I joke uh, that Diddy's break even. <laughs> we never, we never too, we're never too far up or too far down. You're like Seinfeld. We're like Seinfeld. Yeah, yeah. yeah. There's, yeah. The the universe does its thing, yeah. and we break even, right? Mm-hmm. We go to the racetrack, we'll win seventy bucks. By the end of the day, we're back to even. Right. Like, it's never, uh, and and I think that that is something that's good for me right i i really do think that that's a way god is just constantly keeping me reliant on him just like you know what i mean does that make sense mm-hmm. I, I don't know and and i think everyone have it will would react to this experience differently so I'm, i can only speak for myself but i i know that i've had a, i've had a good life you know mm. okay So in our previous Backpew episode with Travis, I did my best to play agnostic advocate and try to pull apart one of my spiritual experiences with some basic psychology. It was really easy to do. I've never been cured of blindness or a debilitating injury. All I have is a somewhat murky mental disorder and a semi-permanent case of the worries. But I did have an experience that felt like a transcendent relief from those painful psychological symptoms, and I sought to poke at it with the sharp stick of basic logic. Give that episode a listen if you haven't, Travis is awesome, and I loved our conversation. I love this conversation with Diddy just as much, but for almost the opposite reason. Diddy is a man of devout faith, almost in a way that I feel like a distant, long-removed friend from. He talks with a sense of confidence and clarity about God and about his relationship with him in a way I certainly remember from my past, but no longer regularly practice. My faith has become a jumbled sequence of questions and doubts and philosophy, I talk about God in conceptual terms. I fit the divine into the space provided by quantum physics and dark matter. So if I'm being honest with myself, maybe I'm not having to play agnostic advocate at all. There are times where I have to look at myself and earnestly ask, if push came to shove, if the chips really fell in a bad way, what would I do? How would I manage? And here I am, sat across from a man who is playing at a table with some really rough odds and some very shitty chips, and he doesn't seem shaken at all. What is that all about? Because that's cool as hell. One of the things that started pulling me away from my traditional Christian faith when I was younger was simply how much science could account for, and how silly it made blind belief look. We have fossil records, carbon dating, evidence of mass extinction events millions and millions of years apart, human skeletons older than the earliest imagination of civilization, We're starting to look a little silly defending this Adam and Eve talking to a snake shit, aren't we? Then I started exploring my spiritual experiences through some basic psychology, and gosh darn it, wouldn't you notice all that stuff has pretty basic explanations too. You bang a drum, get a bunch of people to sing some songs together, and feel the presence of your fellow man, you're gonna work up some tears and feel some powerful stuff. I mean, come on, Coldplay makes me cry. Is that really the Holy Spirit? 
There's just so many explanations as to how stuff works. The universe seems to need God less and less the longer we stare at it. But I can't escape this nagging voice in the back of my dumb primate brain. Why? We can account for most biological phenomenon in humans and our terrestrial cohabitants through evolutionary theory. The process of Darwinian survivalism whittled through our ancestors the traits most likely to keep organisms alive. Two cells beat one, lungs gain an advantage over gills, fangs are good for biting, thumbs are good for grabbing, the ability to digest multiple types of food are good for roaming, sex is good for baby making, it feels good so you do it more, and on and on and on. Everything is geared towards survival and the creation of more life. I'm no scientist or psychologist, but when you start getting into the complexities of the human brain, that Darwinian survivalism starts looking really peculiar. Don't take my word for it. Google the links between faith practice and physical health. Multiple studies have revealed that meditation, prayer, and the practiced belief in a higher power lowers stress, improves circulation, and aids your immune system. The lowering of stress means less cortisol is being pumped into your body by your brain. Cortisol is a great chemical to have coursing through your brain if you're being chased by a tiger, but it's really bad for you if you get a blast of it every time you check your email. Sitting quietly and focusing on something greater than you physically reduces your brain's need to react to stimulus with cortisol. What? Calming your stress activity centers aids your body's ability to heal itself and maintain an optimal working environment. That means there is an evolutionary survival advantage to prayerful meditation or simply imagining you aren't alone in the universe. So I have to draw a bit of a bold line between potentially unrelated factors here and say this. I'm not convinced there is a big god king in the sky performing magic tricks helping Ryan along. But I do think there is a pretty decent argument to be made that Ryan is doing as well as he is simply because he believes in God, and he believes God has his back. There are caveats to this. Religion is not a cure-all. You can't just say, I'm a Christian, I should be well. There are a lot of Christians who are just stressed to the max, and they are filling in the cracks of despair with country buffet. I'm not picking on them, because that was me. There is no evidence to support that simply believing in God or Jesus, saying prayers, or going to church is going to mean you are going to live a long and happy life. But there is abundant research to support that being a part of a good affirming community, living a mindful lifestyle, and believing you do not have to be in constant control is definitely going to give you a survival advantage in a world we seem hell-bent on making harder to survive for ourselves. Is there a personal God who loves us? I have no idea. Maybe a million years ago, some chimps ate some mushrooms, and here we are. Personally, if sitting quietly by myself, taking deep breaths, and believing that the divine cares about me helps my blood pressure go down and strengthens my immune system and my chances at healing and beating disease, I'm probably going to do that. A higher power doesn't have to be real for a faith in that higher power to make a difference. Why? Lord knows. Back to Diddy. Because I have BRCA, this gene mutation, um, basically my doctor said, do, do not have kids naturally. Hmm. Um, because if I do, and I have a little girl, then her chances of getting cancer are 40% more. And hmm. the fact that my mom, my aunt, yeah. and me have all had cancer that have had the BRCA gene, hmm. um, my kid's probably going to have cancer. This, that gets into a whole debate about, like, even if you know your kid's going to be autistic or yeah. have Downs. So this is what happened. Uh, the day before I went in for chemo, my first chemo session, uh, so Christmas Day, <laughs> I went to the I went into the sperm bank, and I banked sperm. Now, this is before I knew that I had BRCA. Mm -hmm. uh, so this was just because chemo might um, make me infertile. And so the idea was just bang some healthy sperm right. and then, uh, you know, get through the chemo and then it, we'll do another check. And if sperm's okay, then great, go have a kid, whatever. But then we found out I had BRCA, right? And so the doctors are like, I hope you bank sperm because you should not have kids naturally. Um, excuse me. And so long story short, 
um, because of all the donations, um, basically I, we, we went through this process of like, okay, well then how do we, how do we have kids? You know, yeah. if, if that's what we want. Um, and we've, we've been going through the IVF process, right? Mm-hmm. So in February, my wife went through this really grueling, you know, egg retrieval and all this stuff. And there's a whole backstory there. Long story short, at the end of the day, uh, they do they do all these genetic tests. They can tell you like ahead of time if it's like downs and all this stuff, or you can, it tells you if you have. And they build this probe. It's called a genetic probe. It's called a BRCA probe, and it's specific to just me. So they took my DNA, my wife's DNA, uh, my father, my mother's DNA, and build this this genetic probe, which is basically like it's a pu- it's a puzzle piece, right? Uh-huh. And so they can have these these embryos, these fertilized embryos. Let's say I think at the time we had uh, we started with 18, we ended up with six after all the uh, natural selection and all this outside of the body, things can't survive, things like that. So we're down to six. Uh, and then they do the genetic testing of like, does it have downs? Does it have all these things? And if it does, it doesn't, it can't survive out the body. So then, then we're down to like four, right? Four um, embryos, fertilized embryos. So then they take this BRCA probe. They take a sample of the DNA from each of these uh, embryos they break it down and if the dna attaches to this probe then you then you know that that embryo has can or has a uh, braca this gene and if it does they let it go if it doesn't then we know that it's a fully healthy embryo so at the end of the day we had three healthy embryos mm-hmm. and we even know the sexes it's nuts uh and so that's and that was a really hard thing for me to get through because I mean, the first thing I said, I don't want to do this because people gave me this money for medical, for like cancer, like, right? So I only wanted to use it for cancer bills and, and this stuff. And I had a lot of them. <laughs> like, right. we probably spent 25000 on just like cancer and all, and all the, everything, chemo and everything else, right? Um, but then I had, I started to talk to my friends. So I had a moral conundrum about it. And I, cause I was like, I don't want to use this for the wrong reasons. And I had a bunch of friends that were like, dude, what are you talking about? Nobody puts stipulations on this money. Like yeah. they know you, they trust you. Like they know if they, if you go buy a speedboat, yeah, they're going to be like, what the fuck? <laughs> but they know that you're smart about your money and that you're investing this in the way. And so that made me feel a little bit better. Then I got into the whole conversation of like, well, like, is this morally okay? You know, like, is this basically like, I mean, abortion, right? It, it, is it, is this me going like, these are fertilized embryos and I'm letting them, I'm like killing them off. Right. And then I talked, so I talked to a bunch of doctors, a bunch of research, and then I learned, like, that's not the way it works. Like, you know, nothing survives outside the body, so all of it is dies off if, like, naturally, like, mm-hmm. you know, like a woman releases, I don't know, something like 400 eggs every time. And men release, like, 8 trillion sperm and stuff. So it's like all of them die off outside mm-hmm. of the body. It needs the body and the, and the womb to, to live, right? So that made me feel a little bit better, but I was still, like, having a hard time with it. But at the end of the day, we kind of came to this realization that, like, you know what? God has given – and this is why I want to say thank you to everyone who's um, – well, if – depending on how quickly you guys is. But thank you to everybody that's donated because it's not just me that they're, like, that they're helping. But um, because of this, like, our uh, future – and my wife's pregnant now. What? Which no one knows about. It's only six weeks in, so please don't tell literally anybody. Yeah, yeah. But um, she's pregnant through this, and we're going to have a little girl. What? Congratulations. So, I mean, I've, I've been blessed by all this generosity, um, and I really can't express how much it means to me. It means a lot to me. But the biggest thing is just, like, knowing that my little girl is not going to—it it, it ends mm. with me. Like, I don't—I know I'm not passing this on. So even if, even if I die in the next two years— uh, I know that my wife won't have to watch my daughter die, you know, from the same thing. That that would be heartbreaking yeah. for her, and I don't, and she wouldn't be able to do it, you know. Man, well, I congratulations! Thank you, yeah, dude. That's yeah. So now you're kind of that's the full everything. That's that's the full oh, story. That's incredible, yeah. dude. Thank you for coming on. Thank you. Yeah. For thank you for me. talking with us. Yeah. Thank you for being real. 
appreciate yeah. that. Yeah. Thank you for sure. the advance notice on the baby. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Bro, it's a hot yeah. scoop. Oh, yeah. Man. That is a hot scoop. You're one of six people that know. So. Dude, well, we won't we won't share any news and we'll yeah. keep our lips sealed. But I, we'll we'll wait to put this out until it's time yeah. appropriate. But okay. thanks so much for yeah. sharing your story. Thank and you for again for being here, me. man. It was such a pleasure getting to know you a little bit better. And, yeah. Thank you. you know, having this time. Yeah. And, and please pray for me because your prayers are way better than, <laughs> yeah. than mine are. At this yeah, point. you're way better at this. <laughs> All, right. All right. Thanks, Thanks for listening, guys.